Hello everyone, this is Sam of Historian Splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description. This will be the third installment of Doorways in Time on the Great Archaeological Discoveries. The last one was for patrons only on the Nag Hammadi Library and the Gnostic Gospels. And this one, number three, will be for the public, the Terracotta Army and the Tomb of Chin. So many of you surely have seen images of the enormous columns of ceramic soldiers that have been uncovered from under the earth in China that have become a major symbol of China. But in order to understand why they were made, we have to look at the geography of China. So the traditional core region of China that has been the main center of its civilization for several thousand years is a wide, flat, and fertile plain running along the eastern seaboard of Asia that is covered largely with fine lus soil, sort of wind-blown, dusty soil, and that has running through it a whole network of rivers running down from the various mountains and highlands surrounding it in three directions to the north, west, and south. And the largest of these rivers flowing through the central plain of China are the Yangtze in the south and the Huanghe, or Yellow River, to the north. And this broad, flat, highly fertile, well-watered plain can produce great yields of cereal crops like millet and wheat, and also some rice to the south. And for thousands of years, this central plain has supported large populations, large cities, fed by these tremendous surpluses of food, and trade and communication among them across the flat land and by the rivers. And even today, the main centers of Chinese civilization, the big cities that are known around the world, are still located in this central core region, such as Shanghai, near the mouth of the Yangtze River to the south, and Beijing, just above the Yellow River in the north. So there's a great deal of fertility and productivity in this central plain that has been the core region of China, but there's also a lot of instability and periodic hardships. The climate of the central plain of China can be fairly harsh. It is subject to severe droughts and floods, which result in periodic famines. And hence, there has long been the need for security from these disasters, which can be provided by a large centralized state. And hence, the main cities in this central core region have often been the capitals of imperial dynasties that rule over and manage this massive population. So if we take that as the sort of basic traditional core of China, if one looks up into the far northwestern corner of this region, there's a province known as Shanxi. And this area is mostly high and rugged, and it's more dry than most of the central plain. And so its food sources and its economy have always been different. There's 
comparatively less farming than in the main central plain. Most of it tends to be crops that can survive in harsher weather and higher elevations like oats and buckwheat, and also a lot of animal husbandry, especially up in driest areas of Shanxi. A lot of raising of sheep and horses and other animals, more so than agriculture. So that has been the sort of distinctive base of Shanxi, this kind of edge, you could say, in a sense, the northwestern frontier of the traditional core of China. In recent years, Shanxi has also become a center of modern industry. There are a great deal of mineral deposits and mines around Shanxi, especially of coal, and that's made it a base and a hotbed of the industrialization of China. It's the biggest coal-producing region, and this has fueled other industries like a steel industry. So most of Shanxi, as I said, tends to be fairly rugged, hilly and mountainous, arid, but in the middle of Shanxi, there is a low-lying valley called Guanzhong, and this is a fairly wide, flat valley centering mostly on the Wei River. So the Wei River flows from west to east out of the mountains, the Himalayas and other mountain ranges to the west, down to the east, and in the middle of Guangzhou, it flows into the Yellow River as it comes down from the north on its way southward and eastward towards the sea. So in this fairly contained valley of Guangzhou, there is some agriculture. There is wheat and millet production, like in the central plains of China. And also there is production of fruit crops that are suitable for long, hot summers, like pomegranates and persimmons. And in the middle of Guangzhou, there is a city called Xi'an, which is one of the big ancient urban centers of China that is supported by the agriculture and the animal husbandry all around it in Shanxi. So there are certain, you could say, disadvantages to Guangzhou as compared to the bigger central plain of China. It is more contained and hemmed in by mountains. It's not as agriculturally fertile and productive, but there are also advantages. It's very defensible it's comparatively harder to invade. A city in Guangzhou, such as Xi'an, is a lot harder for a massive army to reach because it isn't sitting vulnerable in the middle of a massive flat area. Also, Guangzhou, although it's not easy, it does have access westward into Central Asia. And so it's able to gain access to trade goods. For many years, it was the main Chinese terminus of the Silk Road. And the wealth of different products and knowledge that could be passed back and forth across the central belt of Eurasia. And the people in Guangzhou also have had closer access to certain skills and funds of knowledge that are more scarce in the central plain of China, such as particularly horsemanship, which has always had its heartland in the steppes of Central Asia. So looking at Guangzhou and Shanxi, from a strategic point of view, it has positive and negative points. And these came into play, particularly in the Warring States period. 
So if one goes back to the early centuries of Chinese civilization, there were periods, sometimes called the, the Shang and the Zhou, when some sort of ruling or royal house was able to extend suzerainty over the various small cities and principalities around China and create some kind of confederated realm. But it was never all that strong, and in the 400s and 300s BC, what was then China fell apart into seven main feuding regional states that frequently went to war with one another. And there was no real effective central authority. There was still the Zhou dynasty claiming some kind of primacy, but it had no real power. And in this warring states period, there was, of course, instability and uncertainty. But from the point of view, from taking a broad historical point of view, it only makes sense that it was inevitable that eventually one of these states would gain some sort of upper hand over its neighbors and would start to gain more territory, more resources until it overwhelmed the others. And it happens that the particular state that actually did so was the Qin state, which was a small kingdom centered in Guangzhou with its capital at Xi'an. So the Qin state for 100, 150 years, it, it seemed to be just another one of these warring states, just like all the others. But in the mid-300s, the rulers and the royal court of Qin started to institute a series of thoroughgoing reforms. And the ruling elite of Qin instituted a new ruling philosophy called legalism. At least that's what it's called today. And legalism involved the centralization of power and authority at the royal court, the training of a professional elite of administrators who would enforce strict uniform legal codes upon all subjects, and that would be accountable, appointed by and accountable to the monarch. And most importantly, that would oversee an efficient system of tax collection where money and resources could be collected and disposed of from the center. And legalism was fairly revolutionary at that time. It can sound remarkably similar to what modern Europeans simply call modernization, right? The creation of a trained, centralized bureaucracy with accountability at the center, but it was revolutionary at this time, particularly because it rejected the prevailing Confucian ideals of virtue, filial piety, and as applied to government, the idea of virtuous magistrates and subjects. So the common ethos among the different states in the Warring States period, and also later, was that the state should encourage good habits and virtuous living among the populace, that this should be modeled by an elite of magistrates who exercised restraint and who, because of their virtuous upbringing and character, could be trusted to dispense justice according to their own judgment. So it in encouraged flexibility, the recognition of specific unique cases and situations, and it encouraged the delegation of authority to this complex network of magistrates. Well, legalism rejected all of that and 
insisted on uniformity, centralization, and strict discipline, clear consequences for the violation of any given rule or law, rather than flexibility and application to individual cases. And you can see legalism as basically more or less the application of military discipline to civil administration. And it made sense that this school of thought, which had been developing, had been around in different parts of China already, it made sense that it found its first real audience in the Qin state, which was particularly militaristic. So by about 250 BC, the Qin, although their territory was still fairly limited, basically just to the province of Shanxi, nonetheless, they had begun to gain an upper hand in terms of greater monetary resources, a bigger and better trained and better disciplined army than the other warring states. And so arguably, it was only a matter of time until some ruler took advantage and pressed their advantages against the neighboring Chinese states to the east. And this process began in 247 BC when a new young king came to the throne of Qin. He was only 12 years old, and his given name was Ying Zheng. And he had been raised and tutored basically by legalist scholars who really inculcated him with this strict and militaristic set of doctrines and persuaded him that this superior discipline and centralization of the Qin state could bring them victory against their rivals. He used these advantages of legalistic administration and also the advantages of geography the greater defensibility of Guangzhou as compared to the open central plains of China, and cavalry tactics, the Qin state's much greater knowledge and mastery of horsemanship and also of the chariot to quickly invade eastward and overwhelm and annex other states to the east. And he was able to rapidly consolidate power over most of the traditional core region of China within just a few years, and he took up the title of Huangde, which is a Chinese title basically that's traditionally translated as emperor, something greater than just king or prince. And so he formally asserted his right to rule over what had been either just warring states or under the Shang and Zhou dynasties, simply loose confederations of principalities. He now put together this realm as a single empire under his rule. And naturally, he applied these legalistic philosophies and administrative strategies that had been first uh, experimented in Qin, he applied them to this new Chinese empire. So he aggressively centralized his domains, replaced local officials, many of which had hereditary positions and titles. He replaced them with trained bureaucrats that were answerable to the emperor. He quickly standardized weights and measures throughout the empire, standardized the writing system, which was very important because there were different languages and dialects spoken around China, but he instituted an ideographic writing system that could be comprehensible and allow written communication all around the realm. And of course, he instituted strict and standardized law codes, 
And in order to make his authority enforceable and unify the realm, he built a new network of roads and began a long series of defensive walls along the vulnerable northern frontier of China, where it faced the steppe lands of Mongolia. And this was the beginning rudiment of what we now know as the Great Wall of China. Also, as part of his consolidation of power, naturally, he killed off all kinds of enemies and rivals, both from his own Qin ruling house and from the various other ruling houses and noble houses that he had conquered and deposed. And in order to try to completely uh, overturn the old order, the old Confucian administrative order, he notoriously gathered and ritually burned books of Confucian law and scholarship. And a lot of what we actually know about his reign and how he ran his empire comes from later accounts that were collected by scholars of the Han dynasty. So Qin's dynasty didn't last for very long. It eventually, as I'll talk about, fell apart and was replaced by the Han dynasty. And the court historian of an early Han emperor collected accounts of these events in a book called Records of the Grand Historian. And these early descriptions of Qin's reign referred to him as Qin Shi Huang, or the first Qin emperor. So he's recognized as kind of the founder of this empire. And according to these records of the Grand Historian, shortly after coming to power, while he was still just a teenager, Qin Shi Huang began the construction of a massive underground mausoleum complex near his capital in Xi'an. He was supposedly obsessed with death and mortality and wanted to use his power and the resources at his disposal to somehow defeat death and ensure that he would remain in power in the afterlife. So he reportedly brought together thousands of workers from all around the empire, put them to work on building this enormous mausoleum complex, And then after he died, many of them were put to death or buried inside this underground necropolis. And his main mausoleum with his bronze tomb was then buried under a massive earthwork pyramid mound that still remains today. And it's overgrown with forest, but it can still be discerned, although, you know, naively, it might be seen as a natural hill, one can still discern the enormous pyramidal shape of this burial mound rising from the alluvial plains of Guangzhou, just a few miles east of the city of Xi'an. So, That mausoleum and that necropolis overwhelmingly has remained untouched, buried under this massive earthwork pyramid and surrounded by a brick wall around the base of the pyramid. However, in March 1974, a local Chinese farmer named Yang Jifa and his brothers and a neighbor began digging a well on a piece of farmland about a mile east of the burial mound. So by all appearances, outside of the Qin necropolis complex. So this was a time of drought, which often strikes the traditional core of China. 
So they needed alternative sources of water. They began drilling downward in hopes of reaching a water table or an aquifer. And they soon hit a layer of hard red clay. And as they pulled earth up out of this makeshift pit, they started turning up small bronze arrowheads, which was not too uncommon to find around ancient sites of settlement around China. They also began pulling up solid terracotta blocks, which they could then salvage and use for other projects, and then also fragments of sculpture, what seemed to be pieces of some sort of sculpted figures or figurines. So they were intrigued and they started poking around trying to drill more possible wells around the area and they kept finding more small pieces of bronze and terracotta. And they assessed that some of these bronze artifacts like arrowheads might have some value and they began selling them to local antiquities dealers, also not an unusual thing to do. But as these items started to circulate around the market in Shanxi, some antiquarians noticed that they seemed particularly old and might reflect the style of the Qin or Han era from 2000 or more years ago. So noting the possible importance of these artifacts and fragments, they called up an archaeologist at a nearby museum named Zhao Kangmin. So Zhao stepped in and looked around the site where these wells had been drilled. He started to collect and catalog these artifacts that had been found, and he started to piece together some of the terracotta fragments. And after much careful work, he was able to find that they comprised pieces of large, life-sized or even larger-than-life terracotta statues. And he surmised that these dated from the Qin era. So he recognized that this signaled possibly a very important archaeological discovery, especially considering that these apparently Qin-era artifacts were not far from the mausoleum burial mound. So he drew up a catalog and a makeshift report on what he had discovered, but he did not officially report it to the academic or governmental authorities. Why did he not do so? Well, this was still during the Cultural Revolution, when in the last years of Mao's rule, there was a kind of furor for revolutionizing Chinese culture and customs, and part of that was a reign of iconoclasm, a campaign to destroy symbols of the past, particularly of the Confucian past. So he kept these initial results and reports close to his chest. He was concerned that the authorities might not be friendly to his work collecting and cataloging these artifacts or might even want to confiscate or destroy them. However, a local journalist from the area was aware of what he was doing and found out about his discoveries and went ahead and published an article about them in the local press. And hence, the Chinese governmental authorities found out about what he was finding. So government officials stepped in within a year, but much to Zhao's relief, they did not destroy the items, but rather sent in resources and teams to excavate more and preserve what they found. And over the next two years, they opened three different pits 
around the area of the initial discovery, they quickly found 500 more statues, uh, terracotta statues of soldiers, in various states of preservation. And then over the next decade or so, with further careful excavations, large uh, troughs were uncovered containing several thousand more warriors. And to date, almost 3,000 have been excavated. And along with them, various other sculptures and artifacts that seem to form a sort of complex funerary collection connected to the mausoleum complex. So why is it that to Zhao Kangmin's relief and surprise, the government officials responded positively to this discovery? Well, it's probably firstly because of the apparent connection to Qin Shi Huang, who was the first ruler to centralize China as an empire and who really defined China. Indeed, the traditional name China comes from the name Qin. And as we saw, Qin Shi Huang handed down and enforced strict codes of law from the center, and he rejected mainstream traditional Confucianism. And in all of these ways, one can see Qin Shi Huang as a forerunner of Mao, at least as Mao wanted to see himself. It's in line with Mao's quest to destroy and extirpate Confucian influence in Chinese society and to replace those traditional norms with new strictures that are codified and handed down from the ruler. And in Mao's case, of course, those were contained in documents like the Little Red Book. So luckily for Zhao and for the rest of us, it just so happened that this particular discovery could be seen to bolster and legitimize Mao's mission in the Cultural Revolution. Okay, so what did these Chinese archaeologists actually find in these three pits? Well, as of today, as I said, almost 3,000 different and unique terracotta soldier figures have been found. Most of them are intact and still upright, just as they were placed there more than 2,000 years ago. Some of them, however, are smashed and broken into different numbers of pieces and debris. And in those areas where many of the soldiers are broken, there's also evidence of burning. So it appears that when the soldiers were placed in these troughs, wooden roofs were then built over them and then earth piled on top of those wooden roofs. But at some point, it seems these wooden structures in some places were set on fire and statues were destroyed, either intentionally or by falling beams. If one looks at the intact soldiers, they are life-sized or even possibly a bit bigger than life-sized, up to six feet tall, and each one weighs about 300 to 400 pounds. Many of them are still holding real bronze weapons, like swords, spears, and crossbows. They also were originally covered in elaborate, colorful lacquer varnishes, but this lacquer coating peeled and disintegrated very quickly as soon as these pits were opened and they were exposed to the very dry air of Guangzhou. The statues show an incredible variety. They have individual, unique faces, clothing, armor, stances, and poses. Some are kneeling and crouching, particularly archers and crossbowmen, while others are standing with feet planted or standing stepping forward. No two are identical. 
The faces and the body shapes do mostly fall into 10 basic forms. So it's possible that there was some kind of regularized assembly process that used molds or just similar patterns. But nonetheless, every single one has individualized details. There is clear individual handiwork on each statue. And the different types of armor, the different weapons, and the different headdresses and hairstyles all show the different ranks and roles of the fighters ranging from regular infantrymen up to generals. And all in all, it seems that the soldiers are arranged into a massive, organized army with carefully arranged battalions and squadrons and led by clusters of commanding officers. So presumably, this massive, organized army was needed by the Emperor Qin Shi Huang in order to rule in the afterlife. He believed he needed a base of power, to maintain his rulership in the hereafter. And in this way, the army possibly is a kind of recreation or replica of what actually existed in his reign in the 3rd century BC. It's also notable that this army is entirely facing east. Every single fighting figure is eastward facing. Does that mean something? Is it possible that the army was understood as defensive, protecting Guangzhong against attacks from enemies to the east? Remember that when the mausoleum, reportedly when the mausoleum was begun, Qin was still just one of the various warring states, and it was in conflict with other powers to the east. Or was the army understood as offensive? It is it supposed to represent the continuing conquest of Qin over these other powers to the east? Should we see it as marching to attack and conquer Qin's rivals? Or maybe is the eastward direction symbolic of immortality? East is facing towards the rising sun, and hence it's, it's common in different parts of the world for graves or tombs to be arranged with the deceased person facing eastward as if anticipating a rising sun of the afterlife, the second life. So maybe is that why the army is facing east? Or another possibility is that this is just one of several armies. Maybe there are four different armies facing in all four cardinal directions around the mausoleum, and it just happens that this is the first one that's been found. Along with the human soldier figures, there have also been found several hundred cavalry horses, many of them freestanding with no riders, and others of them in teams pulling bronze chariots. Also around the columns of soldiers, in some places there are artificial gardens with bronze waterfowl like ducks and swans, and also terracotta figures of entertainers like acrobats and musicians with instruments. So it's possible that the whole arrangement is trying to recreate either the world of the court or maybe the sort of traveling world of an army that brought musicians and entertainers with it. Also, recent excavations closer in the direction of the burial mound, there have also been found mass graves with remains of workers who died either during the work on the necropolis complex or after its completion. Those early reports claim that craftsmen and builders were actually killed as sacrifices after Qin Shi Huang died. 
So either way, how did those workers actually build this massive army? And how did they create these terracotta figures? Well, it seems that it was a very laborious and labor-intensive process. Records of the time show that a city was created, reportedly with 30,000 families relocated into this area east of Xi'an to build the mausoleum complex. And it was a city that had to form its own administrative district, like a, almost a temporary second capital. And it seems that the work to produce these bronze and terracotta figures was cellular rather than a straightforward assembly line. There were sort of localized teams that worked on different parts and aspects of the statues. And it's often been supposed that the parts must have been made in molds and then pieced together. That would seem to be the simplest way. But in fact, considering the materials, this would be extremely difficult. In order for a massive clay figure like one of these soldiers or horses to hold together, the moisture must be kept even throughout the whole body to prevent cracking and crumbling. And this is almost impossible to do when you have different pieces of a body and you're trying to fuse them together. And in fact, experimental archaeologists tried to reproduce the process and did an experiment in Xi'an in 1992. And they found in this experiment that the whole body had to be made apart from the head. It had to be built gradually from coils, sort of like a massive pot or vase that one builds up one coil at a time. And as they did so, they had to keep the heat and moisture steady. And this whole process leading to a complete body took about a year. And finally, the head could be added on last and just weakly attached onto the neck. And that explains why if one looks in the pits today, many of the statues are intact, but also among them there are some where the head has fallen off. It's the least firmly attached to the rest of the body. Now, once one had fashioned a, a body with torso, legs, arms, hands, then it seems a, an additional outer layer of clay was added on, which was then carved and molded to give the details, like clothing, armor, and facial features. And then the entire piece had to be very slowly dried so that it did not crack and fall apart, and then fired whole, and then it seems transported to the pit and put into its place in the army. So it is not surprising that this whole process probably took decades and thousands of laborers. Now this is what we can surmise just about the creation of this enormous terracotta army. And as I said, it seems almost 3,000 have already been excavated and based on examinations of the topography with sonar and radar, there are many more, maybe about 7,000 in total estimated. And apart from this, of course, there is still the enormous question of what is still left undiscovered and unexcavated. This entire army lies outside of the burial mound, which seems as if it must be the location of the main mausoleum and necropolis. So the army shows the incredible scale and laboriousness of constructing this complex, and it suggests then that the very dramatic reports from later years about the enormity of 
the project of creating this necropolis maybe are not exaggerated. And in particular, the book that I mentioned called Records of the Grand Historian that was written by a Han Dynasty historian, Sima Qian, it has a famous passage describing the creation of the main mausoleum and the central part of the necropolis. So Sima Qian says, quote, In the ninth month, the first emperor was interred at Mount Li. Digging and preparation work at Mount Li began when the first emperor first came to the throne. Later, after he had unified his empire, 700,000 men were sent there from all over his empire. They dug through three layers of groundwater and poured in bronze for the outer coffin. Palaces and scenic towers for a hundred officials were constructed, and the tomb was filled with rare artifacts and wonderful treasure. Craftsmen were ordered to make crossbows and arrows primed to shoot at anyone who enters the tomb. So he's claiming here that it's booby-trapped, kind of like, you know, Indiana Jones and the opening of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he goes on, Mercury was used to simulate the hundred rivers, the Yangtze, the Yellow River, and the Great Sea, and set to flow mechanically. Above were representations of the heavenly constellations, below the features of the land. So you can see the necropolis here is being created as a kind of mimicry or miniature of China in its entirety. Candles were made from fat of manfish, which is calculated to burn and not extinguish for a long time. The second emperor said it would be inappropriate for the concubines of the late emperor who have no sons to be out free, and ordered that they should accompany the dead, and a great many died. After the burial, it was suggested that, that it would be a serious breach if the craftsmen who constructed the mechanical devices and knew of its treasures were to divulge these secrets. Therefore, after the funeral ceremonies had completed and the treasures hidden away, the inner passageway was blocked and the outer gate lowered, immediately trapping all the workers and craftsmen inside. None could escape. Trees and vegetation were then planted on the tomb mound such that it resembles a hill. So, again, this is the sort of dramatic exaggeration that one often finds in historical chronicles. And yet it does seem from what little part of the complex has been excavated, it was an enormous project of a mind-boggling scale. It did involve thousands of people. And there are actual burials there. And it's conceivable that some of these may have been kind of sacrificial burials of workers and servants of the imperial court. And more importantly, this description in Records of the Grand Historian shows an effort to recreate the actual machinery of power of the Qin ruling court. It would make sense that they would have built small palaces for the various government officials Qin trained and dispatched to rule China. And in particular, it's captured people's imagination, this idea of mercury rivers and oceans being continuously pumped by machinery. Uh, we can't know if that's true, but soil around the burial mound has been shown to have a high level of mercury. And that may simply be the result of groundwater pollution from the heavy industry that's now common around Guangzhou. But it also could be from residues and vapors from these underground rivers of mercury. So what happened to the mausoleum after the end of Qin's reign, and why has it never been disturbed? 
Well, Qin Shi Huang was succeeded by his estranged son, who was an adult who had his own separate power network and base of power apart from the emperor's court. So he came to the throne, but he was very quickly challenged by other claimants and courtiers, including supporters of younger, really children, who could be more easily manipulated and controlled by this elite of administrators. And so the realm experienced rebellions and fell into civil war. And it seems in these early years of conflict, this is when much of the army that has been excavated was raided and people dug and broke into these fairly shallow burials of terracotta soldiers knowing that there were bronze weapons buried with them. Many of them real weapons that had been used in battle were perfectly serviceable and some of them were stolen and probably at this same time some of the wooden structures were set on fire and so there was burning and vandalism. However, there was no military reason to raid the mausoleum itself. It doesn't seem that there was any military material there, or at least nothing valuable enough to be worth digging deep into that massive burial mound. So it was left alone. And after not very long, less than a decade, the Qin government collapsed, and it was soon replaced by a new dynasty, the Han, who left the tomb intact. And the Han Dynasty has a complicated relationship with the Qin. In a lot of ways, the Han followed the precedence of the Qin of having a professionally trained bureaucratic class that used the standardized writing system and that was accountable to the emperor. But they rejected the legalistic philosophy and the notion of strict disciplinarian law codes. And instead, they encouraged a return to Confucian ideals. So they were, you could say, ambivalent about the precedent set by Qin Shi Huang, and maybe for this reason left that monument alone, did not elaborate on it, but did not desecrate it either. So the burial mound was left in place for over 2,000 years, and none of the materials connected to the necropolis, it seems, were excavated until, fortuitously, these fragments of soldiers were discovered in the 1970s during the Cultural Revolution, which just so happens to be a period when Confucianism was again out of favor. And so it's maybe just lucky for China and lucky for the world that they came to light just at the time when the legacy of Qin Shi Huang could be seen in a more positive political vantage point. Still today, though, the mausoleum under the burial mound has been left in place, mainly for fear of disturbing and destroying its contents. So remember, these terracotta soldiers have been excavated, but we see them as sort of blank, washed-out gray colors, when in fact they were supposed to be bright and richly colored. But after being exposed to the fresh air for the first time in over 2,000 years, 
those materials were destroyed. So Chinese authorities are concerned that the necropolis, which may contain even more elaborate and stunning artwork or artifacts made of different kinds of metals and alloys, that this might all be destroyed if they break into the tomb chamber prematurely. So they are holding off waiting for maybe someday in the future when the technology will be available to open the tomb chamber safely, keep the atmosphere stable, or maybe even the technology to somehow penetrate and look into the tomb without opening it at all. But regardless, even with the burial mound unopened, even just these pits with the terracotta warriors, of course, have become a major tourist site and an iconic symbol of China just at the time when China was trying to step out again onto the world stage as a new power. So thank you for listening. And again, if you want to hear all of my patron-only materials, including the last lecture on Doorways in Time about the Nag Hammadi Library and the Gnostic Gospels, please go to my Patreon page and become a supporter at any level, even if it's just a dollar. Thank you.